Welcome, music lovers and loyal listeners to Hall of Songs, the podcast in which two men attempt to determine the greatest songs of all time. I'm Tim Malcolm. I am Chris Jones. We are live in stereo in Chris Jones's house here in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Chris, I'm looking at you. It feels good, doesn't it? It is exciting. It's very, uh, very fun. Uh, glad you're here. Thanks for joining me in, uh, in my dining room. Yes, you sound so excited when you say those things. <laughs> we just had a nice dinner at Monk's Cafe in Philadelphia, my favorite bar of all time. We had some mussels. It was fantastic. Uh, that was a fun dinner. Always good. I hadn't been to Monk's in quite a while. So always good to sit up at the bar, have some uh, some Belgian mussels and drink some. I guess I didn't have any Belgian beer. Have some California beer. I, I had some really big beers. So we'll see what happens tonight as the podcast continues onward. So what we do on this podcast is we try to determine the greatest songs of all time. We do that by nominating songs for our Hall of Songs, which is a song hall of fame. We started in 1951. We're going forward in time. We are now in 1965. And in each episode, we nominate up to 12 songs. Then after each episode, we let you have the opportunity to determine what songs are in that Hall of Songs. You get to vote for up to 10 songs to make the Hall of Songs via our website, which is hallofsongs.com after each episode and then after each round of voting we then tell you which songs got into the hall if any did at all and we add them to the pile and so right now we just had a very fruitful class of inductees of the hall of songs five new songs in the hall of songs bringing the grand total to 22 and what are those songs chris they are first of all dancing in the street by martha reeve and the vandellas a Change is Gonna Come by Sam Cooke, The House of the Rising Sun by The Animals, I Want to Hold Your Hand by The Beatles, and You Really Got Me by The Kinks. That's a really good list of songs, and it's kind of accurate for what we were hoping to see out of that last round of voting. Five songs is a lot, but it's really cool to see all of them get in. I'm certainly glad to see a Beatles song get in for the first time. We'll see how many more get in. We do have a Beatle I'm going to say we have a Beatle heavy episode this time out. That's that's for sure. Uh, and we have some great songs to talk about here on this episode. So um, before we get into 65 and the very uh, the very cool 12 nominees we have, Chris, how do you feel about this uh, overall group of songs? Oh, this is an incredible year. This is definitely the I mean, we've said this every year for the last few years, but uh, hardest cuts we've had to make. And there are so many incredible tunes that we could have put on this list that we decided to leave off uh, in favor of some other ones. So this is going to be fun. I will also say that I, the song that I voted for is the number one song of all time uh, in the XPN countdown is one that we're going to talk about in 1965. So that's how excited I am. Chris, I know you have some stuff to talk about with 65, and I know that concerns a band that is very near and dear to your heart. Um, what do you want to tell us about the year of 1965? I know you're excited for this one. Oh, boy. May 5th, 1965, Menlo Park, California. A band called the Warlocks play their first show at Magoo's Pizza Parlor. There's not any tapes that exist of the show. There's not even a set list. We don't know what they played. But we do know that the lineup included 
Mr. Jerry Garcia, Bob Weir, Pigpen, uh, also known sometimes as Ron McKernan, but Pigpen, Phil Lash, and Bill Kreutzman. Other times I can barely see. Now, wait a second. There was no set list. There was no tape. No, there's nothing. not one person we don't who know was standing on the side show. there just like taking notes. There, you know, maybe somebody has one of those little notebooks and was standing there at Magoo's putting down their slice of pizza and writing it down, but we don't know what they played. Unfortunately, lost, lost to history. But later that year, so the Warlocks would learn that there was another band that was called the Warlocks and had already been signed to a record deal. So they decided we got to change our name if we're going to get a record deal. So they paged through this sort of old worldy dictionary uh, to try to find a new name. Jerry, looking through, came across a name that they thought was just perfect. So on December 4th, 1965, the band played its first show using its new name, The Grateful Dead, at Ken Kesey's Asset Test in San Jose, California. So over the next 30 years, the dead would go on to play over 2,300 concerts. Uh, they would change the way that we think about live music. They are, you know, one of my favorite bands of all time. But uh, while doing so, they would frequently fail miserably at trying to make studio albums and try to capture what their live sound was and bring it to the to the recording studio. And, you know, it, it's interesting because I think what we'll talk about a lot over the next few years is why maybe bands like these guys don't have songs in the uh, you know in our nominee list but that's it they couldn't take that sound and bring it to the studio recordings setting aside the grateful dead's lengthy touring history for purposes of this episode we're going to think a little bit about like the acid test shows and how that birthed psychedelic rock or was at least part of the birth of psychedelic rock i mean obviously you can't talk about this kind of music talk about quote unquote psychedelic music without including psychedelic drugs. I mean, obviously that's where the name comes from. In particular, the San Francisco scene uh, in late 1965 through most of 1966, LSD was still legal. So the acid tests were a bunch of events where bands and kids and uh, artists would get together, take LSD and test out various types of performances. And the dead would show up at these and sometimes they'd play a set, sometimes they wouldn't feel like playing, so they wouldn't play. And it was sort of part of this experimentation and cultural expansion. Um, the bands that were part of this scene, I mean, the dead stand out, but there's also Jefferson Airplane, as you said, Big Brother and the Holding Company, uh, which featured Janis Joplin, Country Joe and the Fish, Quicksilver Messenger Service. All these bands, I think, are going to be references over our next several episodes. But I don't know how many songs they're going to have in the nominee list. Uh, uh, you know, if any, because like really it was more sort of their influential sound. It wasn't necessarily the fact that they were making songs or making singles, especially in the way that we're, we're sort of approaching it here at Hall of Songs. But really, even sort of going a half step back, this is sort of when you, you know, Google it, you'll see this about like this is psychedelic rock. But really, this psychedelia, psychedelic rock grew out of a longer tradition, even sort of world music and jazz. I mean, I would say that the first real psychedelic musicians were people like Ravi Shankar and John Coltrane. Uh, these guys would play around with sounds. They'd sort of expand the instruments that they were playing and would incorporate improvised jams on top of, you know, already structured sounds. And that's really what this sound is going to be, you know, quote unquote, psychedelic rock, you know, long jams on top of uh, 
you know, otherwise structured compositions. You've got tempo changes and key changes that sort of are jarring to the listener. They'll use delay loops and, uh, you know, technology to be able to do that on live stage and then reverb. And then there's sort of a lyrical quality to it that, you know, frankly, a lot of times are nonsense lyrics, but they're sort of this trying to get at something more poetic. Um, we talked a lot about the Beatles and George Martin in Abbey Road Studios. We talked about Brian Wilson and doing this sort of studio exploration and making the studio part of their, uh, you know, basically an instrument. So using the studio to sort of do something that hadn't been done before. Uh, tons of other bands doing that. I mean, in the UK, you've got the Yardbirds, you have the Kinks, who we've talked about, and even the Dave Clark Five, who were really an early user of reverb on the UK side. The US, the birds stand out as one who are doing this kind of thing in the studio. And, you know, my sort of, you know, not so hot take, because I think this is kind of, uh, you know, it is sort of w accepted wisdom, I guess, in a way, but is that the ideas that were coming out of the San Francisco sound and this sort of psychedelic music were sort of the, uh, the other side of the same coin, where uh, the Beatles and the Beach Boys were sort of trying to make sounds that nobody had ever heard before, make sort of music in a way that nobody had ever heard before. And they did so by trying to craft these sort of perfect songs where the end product was done and where you'd go listen to it and you'd be like, all right, that is it. That is great. Uh, we're done. And then you'd have that forever. The Dead and some of the others did so through live performance. So what they were sort of doing was not we're going to have this perfect end product, but that the song was sort of a living, breathing thing. So my favorite song of this era for the Dead is... Uh, viola lee blues which is you know a cover of an old blues song but in the dead would play that and every performance was different so it was this ever-changing ever-evolving sound and you know taken as one it is this really great you know perfect art uh you know creation of art but it is not there's no one perfect performance they never sat down and did that and uh that was a fault of theirs when it came to actually working in the studio they couldn't get that quite right so because of that, we're probably not going to hear the dead. I mean, in a nominee list, we're, but we're going to hear that influence. We're going to hear that psychedelic influence. We're going to hear that sort of experimentation and bringing the live music sound into the studio and how that influenced so many of these musicians that we're going to hear, not just in 1965, but going forward. Um, I'm, I'm really excited about, you know, hearing these sounds kind of come into the studio and come into the recordings that we nominate, hopefully along the way um with that chris are you ready to jump into the actual songs that we've nominated from 1965 i am you can hear which uh two songs from rubber soul we cut and you'll hear the 12 that we nominated from rubber soul right oh let's get into <laughs> it no thank you to what goes on okay the nominees from 1965 for the hall of songs coming at you right now Motown. That's right. It is The Temptations from January of 1965 with My Girl. When it's cold So yeah, Motown, right? This is this is quintessential stuff. Yeah, it's pretty amazing that the, this is the first Temptation song, I guess, in a way, right? That it, the 
Uh, it, it feels like this sort of mid-Motown, but the in the Temptations had been around here and there, but really this is their this is their song, right? Yeah, it, it's very much so. Uh, this is a song that you know everybody knows from them. Um, we'll do the quick intro for the Temptations. So they were a fusion of two groups. Eddie Kendricks and Paul Williams were from Alabama. They were in a doo-wop group called the Cavaliers. Then they became the Primes, which we talked about earlier in the podcast. Their sister group was the Primettes, who became the Supremes. Then there was Otis Williams, who had a group called The Distance, and he was offered a contract with Barry Gordy around 1960. The Distance fell apart, though, so Williams then asked Kendricks and Williams, who had actually left the Primes and moved back to Alabama, to come back to Detroit and join his unit. So you had Kendricks, Williams, Williams, Melvin Franklin, and Eldridge Bryant. Eldridge Bryant, excuse me. Uh, they became the Elgins and then became the Temptations. They were signed by Gordy, but from 61 to 63, they made nothing of note. They had no hit songs. Bryant left. He was frustrated, and he also assaulted Paul Williams at a concert. That left a spot open in the group, and it was filled by a local tenor named David Ruffin. And Ruffin was a gospel singer. As a child and a teen, he moved to Detroit at age 16, started hanging around Hitsville, USA a lot, and then finally joined the Temptations. And in 1964, the group scored a hit with The Way You Do the Things You Do, which we talked about a little bit in our latest episode. A few minor hits followed, and then uh, My Girl Happened. Ruffin was installed as the lead singer for that one, and that was actually written by Smokey Robinson, who wanted to write a song that worked for Ruffin. And uh, the rest is really great Motown history. Yeah, I love the way you do the things you do, by the way. I, that's a fun, fun song and one that was really close to making our list. But I mean, this song's just perfect, right? It's the, I love the thing that stands out to me always in listening to this again is the lyrics and how simple they are and how it's a perfect love song, but without uh, being sort of overly saccharine or ridiculous. And it works perfect with sort of mid-tempo. It's not this sort of like over-the-top croony, you know, too much. It is just a perfect a uh, song that mat- matches the tempo. I mean, I just like the, I've got so much honey, the bees envy me, right? And it's like, it's not so silly, but it works. You know exactly what he's saying and it just sort of works so smoothly together. It's just butter, man. This is such a smooth, silky song. The performance is fantastic. And, uh, you know, what I love about it is it, like, you kind of hear the key change a little bit. I feel like the key changes from the first verse to the second verse, although it's not notated that way. It just sounds like it, but it definitely changes by the third verse. And when you get to that, you know, I don't need a money, fortune or fame. That key change is there. It's real. And it really does make a difference. It makes you feel something entirely different with this song. Yeah, and I'll be, you know, this is one of my favorite songs, period. It's such a gorgeous little pop song that it makes you feel a number of things and it's in and out really quick. Um, James Jamerson's bass in this one is really awesome. You know, he just kind of plays away in the background and just, you know, that iconic opening, you hear those first couple notes and you're instantly in this song right from the get-go. Uh, and then the Detroit Symphony Orchestra playing that middle eight, the very sweeping strings, but it's not cloying. As you said, this isn't very saccharine. It's just the right level of sweet without being over the top. And I think that's Barry Gordy, you know, a couple of years in now, really understanding the production choices he's making in the studio. 
yeah, and I just love the outro. There's kind of the backing where they sort of sing their way out, where it's not a call and response, but it's sort of a back and forth. Uh, you know, that those backing vocals just work perfectly with and they give it this perfect, uh, again, the perfect outro where it doesn't come across as sort of this cloying, over-the-top love song. It's just fun. Uno, dos, one, two, tres, cuatro. Right, you definitely know this one. From March of 1965, we have Wooly Bully by Sam Sham and the Pharaohs. So you got to tell me why we put this one on the list. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, into everyone's life, a little bit of insanity must come, right? I mean, this is this is one of the craziest songs that we've done, but I can't help but love it when I hear this song. This song was actually playing in the grocery store today when I went shopping. And I sort of had to like grin because I'm just sort of like sitting there like uh, it, it, there's nothing but fun in the song, right? Yeah, you know, it, it is a fun song. And this is one that I've heard so many times because it's been in a ton of movies and it seems to hold one of those positions as a stock 1960s you know, can't be kind of song that, you know, it always comes with some sort of a weird montage, you know, where people are just running around or something. Uh, but, it, but it makes sense because there is, it's a great fusion of different things. There's definitely a sense of appropriation with the song, but it's also done in a way that I think is it's early enough to where it's sort of nodding to it, but also it, there's a little bit of offensiveness to it, I guess, at the same time, right? Yeah, I would say that the offensiveness to me comes more from sort of the group and their costuming more than the song, because, you know, these guys, the the main character, if you will, is Domingo Samudio, who was born in Dallas in 1937. And he was, he grew up listening to Tex-Mex music and he adopted his persona as sort of this, you know, pharaoh after Yul Brenner's character, which itself was cultural appropriation in The King and I, uh, they formed this band, uh, you know, there was originally a band called the Pharaohs. They all broke up. One of the members of the Pharaohs, Vincent Lopez, started a different group. Uh, Sam joined that group. That group then basically broke up, uh, but uh, he sort of rebranded again, hiring a few new members here and there, and they became Sam Sham the Pharaohs. And whether in sort of that middle stage, Sam took on the name Sam Sham, apparently because people made fun of him for his uh, singing voice or lack thereof, and basically said he was a sham who couldn't sing. Uh, yet he was the lead singer of a, you know, of what was then sort of this, you know, Tex-Mex inspired rock band. Uh, and then they would go on to, you know, record several sort of, you know, odd hits here and there. They were kind of a novelty band, kind of not. They had this song and another one that made it all the way up to number two. Uh, Willie Bully was held out of the number one spot by the Beach Boys, Help Me Rhonda, and the Supremes with Back in My Arms Again. Uh, so a, a big hit. I mean, this was something people were listening to and, uh, you know, an odd sort of roundabout way to get there. But they came up with a, hit, uh, a song that people listen to. Well, this is at a time when the British invasion is still pretty, you know, high on people's minds. And this has kind of a British invasion sound to it. Like I hear his voice and I hear Eric Burden. I hear Van Morrison. I hear that sort of, you know, impromptu garagey kind of sound. And you pair that with this quote unquote Tex-Mex quotient, which I don't know how really deep that is, but besides you know, yelling in Spanish, besides yelling <laughs> in Spanish. Yeah. Which come on, you know, let's, let's, re let's be real here. But 
there is something that is British invasion, American, a little bit of Mexican. It's got that sort of novelty factor. It's one of those songs that, you know, like a yakety yak a couple of years before that we put in the Veterans Committee. It has that same sort of feel that it sort of overcomes the noveltyness of the song to just be a really fun, super interesting, you know, fusion kind of a song that can only work in the year that it's released. Yeah, I mean, this is one of those things, like I, I like I said, I, you can't hear this and not kind of get a smile on your face and dance a little bit. Uh, I love the, the if, when you read about this song you know, and doing some research, the lyrics, the lyrics are just hysterical because it's basically like, you know, sort of incomprehensible yelling at points. But there are many people who have sort of broken this down and to say that what is going on is a dialogue about between two characters, Maddie and Hattie, who are simultaneously discussing some sort of monster, the woolly bully. And they're also disappointed at the fact that they're not very good dancers and want to become better dancers. And there was one sort of person who I read who said, there's no effort to reconcile those two apparently different motivations, right? It's like, <laughs> which there is not. But it has like the great line, which is, let's not be L7, which comes from, you know, making the L on your on one hand, the seven on the other, putting them together and making a square. So it's, let's not be square, which I had no idea, but apparently this is not the only song to do that. This was a thing, you know, there, the let's not be L7 was actually something that people would say. So uh, who knows? Yeah, Paul McCartney. Uh, I mean, I, well, Paul McCartney would take that. Yeah. Did yeah. he take it from Wooly Bully, do we think, or just sort of general cultural? It might be more cultural, but who knows? We'll give Wooly Bully the credit. Yeah. I don't know if McCartney was really like listening deeply to Wooly Bully in 1965, but he did take it for the song Sea Moon from 1973, I believe, which was the B-side of Live and Let Die from his band Wings. So, hey, if, if that if that reason enough, if that connection somehow makes sense, then I'll find we'll put it on. It's good. I, it's, it's actually a really fun song. Hey, look who gets to introduce a Beatles song for once. The Beatles are back here on Hall of Songs with their 1965 nominee, the first of a few this year. It is Ticket to Ride. Yeah, I've always really loved this song. I think this is just a sort of this huge step forward that uh, even in the album Help, which is, uh, I think, just a great, great album, stands out as something that they're doing just a little bit more there. I talked to, you know, about Psychedelic Rock during the intro, and I think this is the first song that we've talked about there. You can make arguments for some of the ones from 63 and 64, but this is the first one that sort of jumps out to me and is like, all right, that's that psychedelic sound. They're, they're playing around with different sort of key changes and tempo changes and it's there's something about it that's like a little bit hypnotic that stands out compared to anything we've listened to before they're playing around with weed chris it's weed (laughs) (laughs) so the story going into this hard day's night was a huge success setting records in britain nominated for an oscar for best uh, original screenplay great movie too soundtrack was just as big number one hits in the u.s and uk a couple songs there but the band was starting to feel the weight of it all 
their follow-up for the holidays of 64 was Beatles for Sale, which is a great album, but also maybe the most underappreciated Beatles album of them all. It's a lot of covers on it. It's got a more morose sound. There's more complexity with it. It's a little bit harder to dig into, but really good stuff. But the Beatles are definitely feeling it. They're a little tired coming in in 1965. Nevertheless, they have to do another movie. And the movie is called Help. It's another one with their director, Richard Lester. And that one is basically about, you know, Ringo's got a ring that, you know, came from somewhere and they're trying to all take it away from Ringo. And the Beatles are trying to help Ringo get away from the bad guys, something like that. Nevertheless, there's a soundtrack with help and it's a good soundtrack. And it's at that this time in early 65 when the Beatles are really deep into marijuana, kind of, you know, having a good time expanding their mind, quote unquote, and, you know, they're, they're just out in the tropical parts of the of the world, you know, doing this movie and recording these songs and just, you know, kind of mellowing out. And so you get this kind of music that is a little bit more forward thinking and has a little bit more heft to it. And so that's what Ticket to Ride is, which is a phenomenal, you know, there's more depth to this song than anything the Beatles have done before. Yeah, uh, I, I, I there's a couple of lyrical things that I just love on sort of the more serious note. I love the. Uh john's delivery of like the oh before the third i think it's the third chorus when he comes in the, the oh she's got a ticket to ride like this sort of plaintive yelp but then uh i forget who it was i, I read this through somebody pointed out like right at the beginning where it's like uh, you know i think i'm gonna be sad i think it's today and then sort of paul comes in with the harmony with this kind of like yeah like it's sort of it's almost a little bit jarring but uh but no, I mean, the vocals here are great. I think this is I, this era to me is where John really sort of shines vocally uh, is like a, the, this uh, help and rubber soul where I love his performances here. And uh, and I just think the song works all all throughout. And like, like the Ringo's drumming here. I mean, I don't know how we've talked about a few Beatles songs and it seems like everyone comes back to how underrated Ringo is. And I just love the way that it's sort of the the it sort of it's like the start and stop to it, right? It never it doesn't get into this perfect rhythm, but that's what sort of gives it a little bit of an uneasiness that I love and is intentional, and that's what's there for the song. Yeah, the drumming is so good. He will sometimes do a four of a four. Sometimes he'll do something more clunky and drop out. And so it kind of gets you thinking about where he's going to go next with each little verse or fill or whatever. And that is exciting by itself. And then on top of that, you have one of the coolest innovations that the Beatles kind of put into place here is this droning A chord that kind of plays on the bottom of this song all the way throughout. And it has that Indian sort of sitar sound. It's kind of a, a, a backbeat that they would rely on a little bit more going forward. And they would introduce more of the Indian sounds, especially in Rubber Soul and then into Sgt. Pepper era and all that. But that alone is a new innovation that they've picked up that they can really add a layer of depth to their recording by just having a chord that just kind of plays along on the bottom of, on the floor there and just it goes on forever and you know to me this is like we're about to really get into big time folk rock folk rock is about to explode here in this very episode this is the song that kind of precedes all of that 
you hear the Beatles getting very close to Dylan, but not quite approaching it. And Dylan gets closer to the Beatles, but doesn't quite approach him. One band in particular that we're about to talk about is going to find that middle. And this song is really close to that middle. It's just such a superb, superb song. You mentioned folk rock. We have the birds with what some have called the first folk rock song, Mr. Tambourine Man from April of 1965. You got to say it like folk rock. I mean, this is the ground zero for folk rock, right? I, I, to me, the more I listen to this and the birds and their early stuff, it's like the birds were like, okay, here are the Beatles. Here's Bob Dylan. Let's smash the two together like a Reese's peanut butter cup and see what kind of flavor we get. And that's what this is. Yeah, the birds are to me one of these groups that uh, they're, I feel like if you're sort of, if you get into classic rock the way I did, there's sort of these big name bands and there's these things that you get sort of launched into and the birds are not necessarily one of those. They come a little bit later. Um, but once you sort of get into them, you sort of hear the sophistication to them. And like what you said, doing a bunch of different things and doing a bunch of different things really early compared to a lot of people. Um, I mean, this is just a great, great sounding song. Uh, we'll talk a little bit later, perhaps, about a different bird song that may or may not be on the list. But uh, I, this is one that, when in going back to it, really stood out to me as surprising as how good it sounds. I, I sort of have this one in my head as like, oh, you know, it's Mr. Tambourine Man. We all know that. But when you go listen to it, really, the recording of it is great. There's a lot of sophistication there. There's a lot of depth to it. The birds are Jim McGuinn at lead guitar and vocals, Gene Clark at rhythm guitar and tambourine, David Crosby at rhythm guitar and vocals, Michael Clark at drums, and Chris Hillman at bass. They formed in 1964, McGuinn, Crosby, and Gene Clark. They were doing Beatle covers in L.A. in 64, adding a Dylan influence later in the year, and then they became a full band, and they covered Mr. Tambourine Man, and Dylan loved their take on it. That set the stage for them to go big, but essentially they started as a fusion of the Beatles and Dylan, as I, saw, as I talked about earlier. So McGuinn, who changed his name along the way from Jim to Roger, at least called himself Roger, uh, plays a 12-string Rickenbacker, which is the very instrument that George Harrison played uh, on the Beatles of Hard Day's Night. So the birds are combining Beatlesque instrumentation with the folky lyricism of Bob Dylan, mostly by covering his tunes. The debut album is Mr. Tambourine Man, and that features four Dylan songs, including this, plus Spanish Harlem Incident, All I Really Want to Do, which is their second single, and Chimes of Freedom. And uh, they cut they they cut Dylan's song in half. So th this is Mr. Tambourine Man, but not the full Dylan version. They actually cut it in half to make it more radio friendly. Dylan recorded this in January '65 for his album "Bringing It All Back Home." The Birds recorded it just a couple months later. So they they were really quick to kind of get on the Dylan train here. Yeah, it's interesting already how many Dylan songs we've talked about that went on to become more popular by other artists. I mean, he really has even at this point in his career established himself as you know, a singer songwriter, but then also as sort of a songwriter in his own right, who people could, uh, you know, use his material and make it their own. And I, that's really what happens here. I mean, this is, a, uh, I think of the Dylan one as more folky. And, uh, you know, the music press, apparently, you know, nobody knows any of these things for sure. But uh, it seems like the first time that the music press ever really used the term folk rock was in referring to this song when it came out, but it was the birds version of it, because they were taking that Dylan folk 
and they were adding this sort of you know psychedelic element they were adding these harmonies they were adding this sort of jingle jangle to it and making it uh making it something different making it their own and i mean this is really uh like i said this was one uh, the 1965 list was intimidating when we started to pare it down and of all the songs we sort of listened to and went back this was the one that sort of surprised me the most at how much i liked it compared to what i was sort of remembering myself like i'm ready to go anywhere i'm ready for to fade on to my own you mentioned Jingle Jangle. You know, Dylan basically invented that phrase in his version of Mr. Tambourine Man, the original. And the birds kind of perfected that phrase really quickly by putting it alongside this very jingly, jangly guitar. And it's like the beginning of Jangle Pop. It's like it's like they're setting the stage for so many things going forward. In a very short span of time here in 1965, it's really unbelievable to think about how the birds very quickly were inventing at this time. And, I, you know, I also love McGuinn's delivery on this thing, right? The, the, the vocals are so great. The way he sings the line, uh, cast your dancing spell my way, he kind of smiles through that. He's in on the joke. There's a little bit more going on here with the vocal. It's a really fun performance alongside just being this iconic sounding song that sets the stage for an entire genre and subgenres of music over the next 15 years. Uh, you know, I mean, it's just, and what's amazing about the birds as well is the sort of family tree that they would have. I remember, uh, when I was in high school, I got the Crosby, Stills and Nash box set that it was, I think, a four disc set that had really everything they had ever done boiled down to those four discs. But the back page of it was a family tree. And it started, I think, with, you know, Crosby, Stills and Nash in the middle, but the birds were the focal point. And it's like, what happens? I mean, like so many of my favorite artists in the world got their start from this song and from this sort of birds uh you know, the, these sort of initial birds things. I mean, you've got David Crosby and then you're going to, we're going to get into like, you know, Buffalo Springfield and Graham Parsons and all of the Crosby, Stills and Nash and all of their side projects and everything that sort of comes out of this from the California sound is really just incredible. And this is the birth of it. here we go this is one of the big ones we all know this one it's the rolling stones with parentheses i can't get no satisfaction who are the rolling stones chris who are the rolling stones they're just a couple guys from london is that uh, what they are yeah mostly <laughs> i mean there's mick and keith and brian right i mean who was there mick so the original lineup here at least in 65 you had mick jagger on vocals Keith, who was the guitarist, uh, Brian Jones, uh, then Charlie Watts on drums, uh, Ian Stewart, and then Bill Wyman on bass. Uh, you know, Keith is sort of one of these odd guys to me in the fact that he's he's just he's a rhythm guitarist at heart. And 
you know, they would occasionally sort of like at this point, I guess he's sort of playing lead guitar because he's doing the whole riff, but it's all about rhythm for him. And it's all about these unbelievable riffs, right? It's not like the guitar solo thing. He's just this, the most fantastic rhythm guitarist that I think there probably ever was. And I say that with all due respect to the great Bob Weir. <laughs> so the Rolling Stones met up uh, in the early sixties, Jagger and Richards were, you know, together first, they joined up with Alexis Corners Blues Incorporated that also had Jones and Watts and Stewart in it. They'd break off and play a whole bunch of their own American blues from folks like Bo Diddley, Muddy Waters. Wyman would join the band in 64 once they started to blow up. And part of it was the Beatles effect because the Beatles were big and other British bands got big too. Uh, but the Stones were kind of the antidote to the Beatles. They were the bad boys. They were the rebels, what have you. Um, you know, they were dirty. They had the blues and R&B while the Beatles were more pop and sort of old American rock and roll or whatever. Um, and they had some really good tunes at this point. You know, Time is on my side. Uh, you know, what were some of the we, we, we talked about like two or three songs for 63 and 64. They had It's All Over Now, which was in 64. Uh, there were all kinds of some of the ones that are in the old Hot Rocks uh, Rolling Stones collection that were the you know, 64, 65 songs. And a lot of these were, uh, you know, American R&B covers, uh, or they were at least American R&B influences. And uh, this is, I mean, the, the, I love the Stone Sound. And it's, it, it's funny to me, I have a book, uh, you're, as we said, you're recording this in my uh, dining room. In the bookshelf in the room that we're in, I have a book that is Jim DeRogatis and Greg Cott that is The Beatles versus the Rolling Stones. And there's this idea that there's this sort of rivalry between the Beatles and the Rolling Stones, which to me has always been sort of comical in a way because, you know, yeah, I mean, they came up at the same time and I think they were trying to outsell each other, but they weren't trying at all to do the same thing. Like they were, they were very much making different sounds of things. They were influenced by a lot of the same type of music, but, uh, you know, what that what their sort of end game was so much different and to me the you know my answer always to the beatles versus the rolling stones is yes i mean it's like you take them both i mean like like we're lucky enough in this world that you don't have to make that choice right it's like and there's no reason why you should have to make that choice and there's no reason why it has to be a rivalry they're both uh just such incredible bands you've got and uh, again coming from similar influences but using those influences in such different ways and i love it So what makes Satisfaction such a great song? Well, it just sounds instantly iconic. It sounds like the kind of thing where you hear it and you're like, yeah, there's a reason this song means something. It sounds big. It sounds meaty. It sounds important. And I think part of it is, of course, Keith Richards's mammoth riff there. That opening riff is just tremendous. And then you have Jagger's vocals. He really sings these vocals like he knows this is an important song. You know, he's whispering throughout. He's screaming at times. He plays it up so perfectly. It's a great performance. Um, and, and you know, also with that, like, there, there's there's this great lyric sheet, right? You know, it's this guy who's pissed off with capitalism, pissed off with modern times, and, you know, is tired of people selling him stuff. And he just wants to kind of be his own man and be satisfied in some way. It's very bluesy. It's got a bluesy backbone in that respect but it is very modernized and it's done with such an awesome performance by Mick Jagger. I mean, like the two things together, Jagger's performance and Richards's guitar lines here, especially that opening riff make this so iconic. 
Yeah, and I always love the part where the the instrumental sort of back down for a singer, there's just kind of a drum break and Mick sort of sings the hey, hey, hey over it. And his voice at that point sounds so clean and it sounds almost like it could be in like, you know, a Motown song or a Phil Spector song where it like all of a sudden that snarl is gone for just a couple seconds. And you can really hear that American R&B that they're channeling there. And, uh, uh, you know, it really is this great sort of thing where they have this uh, grit on top of that really sort of solid R&B underbelly that that is, you know, that goes to this whole song. And this is probably to me the first song that we've talked about that you know, when you listen to those like classic rock stations that do their top 100s of all time, this is probably the first one that we've talked about that it wouldn't be ridiculous to see this one like at number one or at least in the top 10. Like, you know, every song we sort of talked about before that maybe on sort of these, you know, rock and roll things gets in list. But this is the one, the first song that it's like there's a, you know, people will vote for this is the best song of all time. So this is a pretty song from uh, June of 1965. We have uh, The Miracles with The Tracks of My Tears. You're a huge fan of this song, right? Yeah, I, this is one of my absolute favorite all-time songs. I know I said that Dancing in the Street was like my number one Motown song. I don't know. This might be my number one Motown song. You know, you, you forget that these songs exist and you're like, oh my God, that's right. The lyric sheet on this one is so wonderful. It's the lyric sheet is matched by a production that is just pitch perfect for the song. Um, but I keep going back. What I always go back to with this one is the line. Although I think she's cute. She's just a substitute because you're the permanent one. That line and the, the turn of phrase and the twist there with that, it's just that melts my heart every single time. Uh, yeah, another this is another song I know from the Big Chill soundtrack. Again, a great place to start when you're doing this. And I love I with you, I love the lyric sheet on this one, and it does what My Girl does on the flip side, where My Girl is this sort of homage to you know the woman that he's in love with. This is an homage to Heartbreak, but it does so without being schlocky. It does so in a way that it is, I am you know moving on with my life. I am. Uh, you know, we're in the, like this relationship is in the past, but at the same time, it still kills me. And uh, the imagery of like the tracks of my tears is just this. I just think it's a great image, right? Where it's like, uh, it's you know, you know, you can sort of still see the crying that's there, but you have to look closely, right? It's like it's not. He's putting on a face. He's doing something. He's like putting on the brave face and trying to get on, but uh, still pained and uh, just beautiful and just beautiful in a way that's not schlocky. So this was written by Smokey, uh, also Marvin Tarplin and Warren Moore. Robinson says Tarplin wrote it first, but the seeds of the song were actually in a song that Smokey wrote the year before called My Smile is Just a Frown Turned Upside Down, which he wrote for singer Caroline Crawford. And if you listen to that version, Caroline Crawford is very much one of these early Motown female vocalists who kind of has this Diana Ross thing going on 
little bit of a smoky thing going on, kind of innocent. And the song is definitely the seeds of this one. In fact, there are certain lines in My Smile is Just a Frown, Turn Upside Down, that go right into Tracks of My Tears. Um, now, that one is more up-tempo, um, but this one is definitely smoothed out. Smokey, I'm sure, was listening and going, man, I could do this one a little bit better. I can do the Pagliacci reference a little bit better. I could do more by it. So let me do a slower song, make it a torch song, make it a ballad. And it just hits every freaking note here. You know, there's a great simple arrangement in here. Guitar, drums, tambourine, strings in the chorus very reserved but it's it, it, like everything is just necessary for this song there's nothing overdone about this and that's one of the key things about motown early on is that every instrument seems to play its part perfectly Yeah, I mean, this whole, uh, you know, our whole, uh, the podcast and getting this and cutting down these songs and listening to them has really given me such a huge appreciation for Motown and the way that they're able to get the production just right there. Uh, I that It's like they use these instruments in there, but they're able to do so in a way that it's not, it's never overkill. Uh, and, you know, I mean, there's obviously, there's a few that we've listened to that didn't make the cut. Maybe they're there, but it's like these great Motown songs are just perfectly produced and perfectly delivered. I see the tracks of your tears. Don't cry. We're only at the halfway point of this episode right now at Hall of Songs. It is time to take a break. Maybe grab yourself a beverage, have some popcorn, whatever you'd like to do. And listen to us talk about our website, hallofsongs.com. That is where you can find all of our episodes of Hall of Songs and read a lot more about what we do. Chris, what do we have on the website right now? Oh, on the website. What do we have on the website? You Well, as soon as this episode comes up, you can go vote for the songs that are uh, on the list, we're going to have 21 songs. You can vote for up to 10 of them. So it's going to be a great tight list. Uh, you can interact with us at the website. You can uh, comment there and give us suggestions of things that you want to hear us do. And uh, you can always like listen to the podcast directly on the website. Uh, I'd recommend going to one of your favorite podcast providers, especially the iTunes or the Apple Store, whatever it's called now, and giving us a nice five-star rating and then a review. But you can even listen to it directly there. Yeah, we have some bonus episodes as well that you can listen to. Uh, if you go to our Apple podcast page, you can check all those out. At some point, we're going to have a bonus episode. It might not be quite yet, but very soon on uh, my experiences listening to a fish performance. It was a 33 minute performance of their song Tweezer from August 1st of 2021. I listened to it on radio some radio station had the gall to play a 33 minute fish song and i had I had thoughts I, I had i had feelings so we talked about that in a bonus episode so that'll come up pretty soon we also have bonus episodes with uh justin gosman of the tcb cast in fact chris was on an episode of tcb cast recently it was phenomenal where he talked about elvis especially in the early 70s and some of the great albums he put out that time we also have an episode where Chris and I go deep on our love for the Beatles. Uh, if you want to really hone in on our Beatle mania, Beatle phone, whatever you want to call it, uh, Beatlephilia, 
Yeah, uh, hopefully not Beetlephobia. That would be Beetlephobia, a, not Beetlephilia. Uh, it's in that episode. Um, then there are other bonus episodes we've done over time. And go back to our old episodes and listen to other years and just see what we've been talking about in other years as well, because it's really fun. Uh, we have a lot to get through, so you should get through it too with us. Um, and yeah, listen to us wherever you find us. We are on Apple. We are on Amazon. We're on Spotify. We're on Pocket Cast. We're on you know, all, all the places, all the places you can find podcasts. We are there at Hall of Songs. Um, and Chris, where can you find us on the web? Uh, you can find us and any of the socials. We are active on Facebook. Uh, go to Facebook, look for Hall of Songs. We're there. You can also find us on uh, Twitter, Hall of Songs. We are not active on Instagram, but you can go there and find us anyway and follow us. And maybe someday we will be active. Uh, we'll be, uh, but you can still follow us there anyway. So uh, go find us. Uh, and again, we're hallofsongs.com. It's our main website. And hallofsongspod at gmail.com. Shoot us an email. All right. I think it's time for another beer. What do you think? Yeah, that sounds good. All right. Let's do it. Dress so fine, do the bumps of dime in your prime. Then you. It's the drum shot heard around the world. Bob Dylan, summer of 1965, like a Rolling Stone. Uh, this is one that, I, yeah, I, I have a hard time talking about this song because it's it's so ubiquitous. But it's still like the more you listen, it's like it never gets old. Right. And it really is just such a tremendous composition. It's just perfect at what he was trying to do. And uh, I don't know. I, I just love everything about it. It's long, uh, but it never sort of seems to get tiresome. I was listening to this again yesterday, getting ready for this. And uh, I was amazed when it was ending. And I was like, it's over already. And that's after, you know, six minutes because it just really has uh uh, I, I, I don't know. It, it's just a really fun, great song to listen to. Much like the Beatles stuff early on, I was really trying to convince myself to be very objective with this song, particularly because I've heard it so much. I've seen it at the top of every greatest song of all time list so much. I know how impactful this song has been for so many people. So I've been really hard to, to criticize this and, and really see it through a different lens. And it still holds up really well. The more I listen to it recently, the more I appreciate, especially within the context of what we've been hearing, the length of it, the audacity of it, the fact that he is basically an asshole throughout this whole song and the backing music through it is just so like, it's, it's not perfect. It's clumpy. It's, weird but it's so perfect for it and we're at a point now with dylan where you know he was doing blowing in the wind and singing folk songs about how you know how the world needs to change and all that and here we are a year later basically and he's you know kiss my ass and it's just and it's just this whole different vibe it's really amazing to hear that evolution happen that quickly Yeah, and it's funny because I, you know, hearing you say that, like, I don't have that issue as much. I, 
I will never say I am sort of a Dylan skeptic or anything like that. I'm kind of a Dylan contrarian, perhaps, where I push back a little bit. And it's only because I sometimes hear people talk about how, oh, well, Dylan is the best songwriter of this and that. And it's like, you know, shunning aside Lennon and McCartney and uh, so many others. I mean, it's uh, in, so it's not anything against Dylan, but I occasionally will be a tiny bit contrarian about Dylan, but this is one song that I can't even have any of that feeling for because it just does really work. Uh, and I think that to people who, you know, sometimes me included, who sort of talk about, we, we talked about this, I think in the, the first time we talked about Dylan, about his vocals. Uh, if you are one of the people who thinks, oh, he can't sing, uh, you know, I, you can certainly look at some of his later stuff and have some quibbles with his vocal performances, but not this. This is the best, uh, you know, counter argument to that. It's like he just he delivers this perfectly. I mean, every single line that he sings, it's like anybody else doing this. It's not going to work. Yeah. I, and I want to mention real quick. You talked about, you know, being a, you're a Dylan, not a skeptic, but it, what it was. Don't get trarian. I'm a big Dylan fan and I haven't talked about it too much on this podcast, but I have always been a big Dylan fan. And so that's part of the reason why I was coming into this as objective as I could be. Uh, but it, nevertheless, like it does shine so bright, this one. Um, and for all the reasons you said, you know, with the vocal, yeah, he does sing the heck out of this song and it's really great. Also, the organ by, you know, uh, Al Cooper, it's, it's fantastic. I mean, he bleeds all over this thing and it gives it such a, a, a vital, you know, pulse and Mike Bloomfield, his guitar is just, it's in and out and it's kind of weird and it's jagged at times, but it's so perfect for what Dylan is bringing to the vocal. So the story of this one real quick is that Dylan in early 65 was touring England. He was just sick of being a folk star, sick of living to people's expectations. And so he wrote this poetry in some ways as a reflection of all of that, trying to say, you know, I, I'm sick of this. I want to do this. And you all, you guys suck. But then he called this particularly uh, a lyric sheet vomit, uh, but he cleaned it up. He turned it into, you know, one of the greatest come to Jesus moments of all time. And he was kissing off to whoever the hell he could here. And he trimmed it down. It was originally like seven or eight verses. He trimmed it down to four verses and a chorus. And he was in Woodstock, New York, which is an arts colony in the Catskill Mountains that is very near and dear to my heart. Um, and we'll talk about Woodstock, I'm sure, quite a bit over the next few years. Uh, he did it there, and he put it behind a four and four beat. And Mike Bloomfield, as I said, was the guitarist on here, doing more of a rock arrangement. And it's a six-minute song. It is audacious. It is more than anybody had ever thought to do at this time. And yet he, he's, he's defiant about it. He puts it out as a single, and it's a big hit for him. I mean, I'm glad you mentioned the organ. I feel like this has that amazing sort of folk rock sound with the late-night barroom uh, you know, sort of swagger to it that the organ gives it. That to me is really what makes this different from some of the other Dylan ones that we've talked about. It gives it this sort of sway that, uh, you know, again, you like what you're saying, but he's sort of is being this sort of like, you know, a caricature of himself and sort of, you know, shouting out the lyrics or sort of, you know, in that late night barroom you know, feel as part of it. Uh, I also think that, it, and I, I will criticize Dylan about this at times, is when he uses the harmonica and sort of goes overly folky. This one is perfect. He uses it just what he needs to do to offset the lyrics. It's a really, it's really well played and it's never sort of, you know, over the top and that. And uh, again, I mean, this is one of those things that it, it's hard to sort of come up with, uh, you know, talking about 
how great it is because it, it just is what it is right it's like at some point you're just sort of there it's like i you know what else are you gonna say it's it it's one of the best songs that's been written and again it's interesting like we've said that it's said this about satisfaction this is another one that it's like if this were to if somebody were to vote on the best sort of you know rock songs of all time and put this at number one uh, you know you can't really quarrel with them yesterday all my troubles seem so far away now it looks as though they're here to stay oh i believe in yesterday suddenly i'm not half the man i used to be another one you're gonna know uh yesterday by the beatles from august of 1965 i feel like i've heard this one someplace before huh mm, someplace one place <laughs> maybe a few places so some people say this is the most covered song of all time. I have no idea what how you can come up with those stats or do anything like that. Uh, it would also be surprising to me a little bit, but still, uh, the point underscoring that, I guess, is just how sort of ubiquitous it is, right? Yeah, it's like the first song that you, I guess, after Smells Like Teen Spirit, play on a guitar and you learn the <laughs> lyrics really quick. It's a very simple song, and Paul McCartney, in fact, thought he stole it from somebody because he woke up one night, wrote the lyrics down, you know, at his bedside, and then he played it the next day and was like, wait, I know this from somewhere, and he asked everybody, and they were like, no, I haven't heard this before, and he was like, okay, I guess I have a song. Of course, the original lyrics to this were scrambled eggs, oh, my baby, how I love your legs. You know, we know the story behind this one. It's overdone. It's overplayed. It's over this. It's over that. It's over easy. They're scrambled eggs, whatever. It's still pretty good. I mean, I, look, I'm not the biggest yesterday person. I There are so many more songs that I will vouch for over yesterday, but I think you cannot deny the impact, the influence, and even the popularity. This was the number one hit. This song is so big, it kind of dwarfs all of us, including McCartney, doesn't it? Yeah, so I mean, it's funny. We talked on our Beatles episode about the movie yesterday, uh, which you haven't seen, which I really kind of enjoyed. But it's the they title it after the song, obviously. And the first song that the guy plays when he, uh, you know, sort of wakes up out of this coma and realizes the people haven't heard of the Beatles, the first song he plays for his friends is yesterday. And there's something to that, right? That it's like, even if you you know, you might love it, you might not love it as much as some people, but there's something about the fact that when you're picking out of all the songs in the world, essentially, and you want to say, if nobody's ever heard that song before, you're going to play one song and just blow them away, and it's yesterday. Uh, yeah, I mean, it holds up. It is, it, it's just, uh, it's so sparse, and it's so perfect in the recording that it's all about the melody and the lyrics and there's not anything else to it. And it's interesting because we talked about Ticket to Ride earlier about the production, about some of the psychedelic quality of that. The Beatles sort of taking all that, sort of throwing it out the window and sort of still saying, and I guess the Beatles, by that I mean Paul in this case, but throwing that out the window and saying, look, we can still write a melody like nobody else. Yesterday. Yesterday, love was such an easy game to play. I need a place yeah, to and, and this is as simple as it gets. It's Paul McCartney backed by a string quartet, something like that. 
and that's i mean that's something that hasn't been done right i mean the beatles were one of the first if not the first real band that made it big in the country and the world and they're doing all these rock and pop hits and now a couple you know two years into their like height of stardom they do this song that is just one guy with a string quartet behind him and he's got a guitar and that's that's new that's different that's Cause we get around. All right. How about this one? Man, oh man. The Who are here in the Hall of Songs nominee list. It's their October 1965 smash, My Generation. Chris, you love this one, right? How much do you love this one? Uh, so again, we've talked a lot about our, our the, my silly list of the WXPN uh, best songs of all time. Uh, I voted this song number one and will stand by it. Uh, to me, uh, when you combine the best rock song of all time with my favorite rock song of all time, uh, this is it. This is the best. Uh, this is what, you know, this type of music is for me. Uh, I can talk about why, but it's just, uh, it is pure chaos. It is pure, beautiful chaos. Everything about this does what, you know, I want in music and, and I love it. I mean, I don't, I don't, I, I, I'm going to have a hard time talking about this one uh, for a lot of reasons, but like, yeah, I, I just like, I, I can't talk about, I can't put into words how much I think this is just an incredible piece of art. So I'll do the heavy lifting here on this one. Then the who let's talk about them. They're Pete Townsend, Roger Daltrey, Keith Moon, John Entwistle. We all know what they play, right? Yeah, we do. Started with Townsend and, and Whistle, who met in grammar school. They played together a bunch in the 50s. Daltrey, meanwhile, dropped out of school and joined a band called The Detours. He recruited Ent Whistle, who then brought in Townsend, and Daltrey assumed control of The Detours. And in the time other members left, The Detours became The Who. And like The Beatles, the last piece was The Drummer. Also like The Beatles, The Drummer, Doug Sandum, was axed because a producer that the band auditioned for wasn't keen on him. So out was Sandum and in was hot Wembley drummer Keith Moon. The Who were a wild and unique band playing instruments unlike anyone else and gaining stage presence and image as much as they were writing good songs. Up until 64, they were working a lot and curing their look, representing the mod culture of hip fashion, R&B music, and scooters. Scooters, still in today, huh? Their sound took over from there. Taken from American R&B and soul, they'd call their sound maximum R&B. I think we both have our issues with that term. <laughs> they became big in pirate radio, non-commercial radio, that is, and were beloved for their non-traditional punkish approach to music. And this song particularly was written by Townsend about finding a place in society. He said he was inspired by Queen Elizabeth, who was, yes, it, she was queen in 1965, she was wanting a Packard hearse towed off her street because she was offended by looking at it while driving past it. That is terrible. Uh, Townsend also tipped Mose Allison's young man blues for this young man's blues for this. Um, and man, what I love about this one is that we've had a number of now rock and roll songs by bands, right? The Beatles have been in here. We've had now the stones and other people. This sounds like you hear each of the four guys really good at what they do all independently, but also at the same time. 
And that's what the who, that's what they are. Like one of the greatest bassists ever, one of the greatest drummers ever, one of the greatest, you know, rhythm guitarists, lead guitarists, whatever you want to call them ever. And then a phenomenal rock star vocalist all together as one, but also separate. Yeah, I think to sort of understand my love for this song, you have to sort of like jump back to me being like, you know, 12 or 13 years old and uh, with a good friend of mine getting a bunch of tapes. You know, I think we did the Columbia House thing where he had, you know, boatloads of tapes that were recommended by his uncle. And one of the ones that we got was Who's Better, Who's Best, which still holds up. is like an incredible collection and it's now out of print. You can't, it's like not on, you know, any of the streaming services because it was this collection. And I had one of those, you know, old Walkman sport things that was yellow and getting the thing, not really knowing what was going on, putting in the headphones and turning this on. And, you know, this is going from somebody who's like listening to, you know, late 80s, you know, 90s music at the time and, you know, the stuff that's on MTV. And all of a sudden this song just sort of launches in and it's like, oh my God, what is this? And uh, just wanting to restart it and restart it. And Every single song that's on Who's Better, Who's Better, Who's Best eventually had that sort of in, like that impact on me. But uh, this one is the one that was like, I, I had not heard anything like this before. It was sort of this awakening of, you know, noise, but noise that was controlled. And it's in learning more about it and, you know, listening to it again, it's Keith Moon who controls it. It's Keith Moon who drives it. The drums in this are just so perfect. And uh, I mean, it makes everything just sort of, you know, overwhelm you as far as like there's this noise. And uh, and then again, there's this end up part to it where they come back in and they sing the, the chorus uh, and go back into the talking about my generation after this ridiculous sort of, you know, drum break where the whole song has kind of fallen apart and where they sort of emerge back that it's like I had never heard anything like this before in my life. And uh, I still am not sure that anyone has ever quite captured that kind of energy in doing this, particularly in the, you know, studio recording where they're trying to, you know, sit down and put something on record. And uh, again, it's like, I, I go, I'll get, I, I can't sort of speak about it in sort of a rational way because this is sort of one of those that it's, it's all visceral to me. And it's all just sort of this impact that it's like, I hear the sounds of this coming from someplace and I'm like, Oh, there it is. It's the best song in the world. I'll have to go listen to that. Ed Russell's Fender jazz bass solo with the nylon strings because it kept breaking. Just the way he plays that bass is just so tasty. It just mm, makes you really, really happy. Uh, Moon, the funny drum fills that respond to Daltrey's druggy kind of vocals, like crazy vocals. Um, the big noisy fuzz of the bass and guitar in tandem. The call and response that kind of gets you back to the Isley Brothers and Motown and stuff like that. Um, and then... Sonically, the song just kicks butt, so much butt. And I mentioned off the top the Maximum R&B thing. The Who called themselves Maximum R&B. It kind of takes away from the roots of R&B and what black musicians were doing in the 50s and 60s, especially with that term and making it their own. So I don't want to like kind of think of them as R&B. They just take the R&B influence 
turn it into something totally different with that British invasion, with that grunge, with the chaos, as you talked about, and make it something really delicious and really awesome to listen to. And on that note, their album that just comes on, My Generation from 1965, is an awesome album. There's so many great songs on that. And if you listen to the deluxe version of that one, they do a cover of Martha and the Vandellas' Heat Wave, which actually shows up on their next album, A Quick One. And it's a really cool version of that song. They were just so good at paying tribute to R&B, putting their own little British invasion spin on it, putting some heft behind it, making it sound awesome. All right, we have James Brown uh, making a return with I Got You, I Feel Good from October of 1965. <laughs> That's not my best James Brown. Yeah, that was a bad James Brown, I guess. <laughs> that was better. <laughs> okay. Boy, this is such a cool... This is, this is James's arrival into funk, basically. This is, this is funk saying hello. Yeah, this is just such a fun song. And... Uh, you know, this is another one where, where, again, when you go back and you listen to these, you know, sort of really getting into them and trying to do this, how the production of this holds up. I would have said, like, in my head, this is one that I always kind of feel like was sort of this loose, sort of all over the place song and just having fun. But, uh, man, this is a really tight, tight, uh, you know, track that they just do a beautiful version on. I, I love this. Story behind this one, James Brown was developing the sound that would be considered funk throughout the early 60s. His backing band was the Famous Flames, which we talked about before. Bobby Bennett, Bobby Bird, Lloyd Stallworth. And they were on Think, which we nominated, as I talked about, in the Veterans Committee. In 62, Brown was starting to develop his reputation as a must-see live performer. At the same time, I should mention that he was also dating 17-year-old Tammy Terrell and allegedly abused her in the process. Brown and Bird started a production company called Fair Deal with Mercury Smash Records imprint, but King Records, who he was with before, fought that and re-signed him, promising him more commercial success. Certainly came true in June 65 with his single Papa's Got a Brand New Bag. Great song. Gus is a standard blues treatment with hard percussion, brass, and a ringing guitar line by Jimmy Nolan. Two singles later, we get this one. And this one was actually originally a track that Brown had recorded in 1964. He redoes it here in 65. It includes Nolan, drummer Melvin Parker, who Brown used for the songs that he knew would cook, so he brought him in especially for those. And a number of brass and woodwind players, including alto saxophone player and Melvin's brother, Maceo Parker, who does a little solo on the bridge. And it's really good. Man, this is such a cooker. Yeah, I mean, this is another one that I have a hard time talking about in a way because I feel like I've heard it so many thousands of times and it always just works, right? It's uh, it's so much energy here. Uh, it's, uh, it's so much fun to listen to. I mean, it's not the most, obviously, the most sophisticated lyrics, but uh, it really is just about having fun. It's about like it's, a, it's sort of an almost an improv type song that uh, that comes off, right? It like comes off sort of like that you know, we're just going to sort of play. But again, with the production, it really comes across as a really tight production. And uh, 
I don't know. I just love it. Uh, it's fun. I really like the way uh, the second part of the song, when the horns sort of come in, there's that minor horn break that do, 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 do. And then it, there's a really slight key change when it comes back in. And again, it's part of this being like a much more sort of sophisticated composition than what it might sound like when just, uh, you know, with just sort of this fun dance song. So nice, so nice, I got you. This is like what James Brown is capable of when he's, you know, reined in a little bit and his band is 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 tight, but also given the freedom to, you know, play it out a bit. And they're both in harmony. Um, I love the bass line on this thing. It just walks through the entire track and it sets the whole tone. And, you know, James is doing the vamping. He's doing the hey and he's, you know, all that stuff. But it is rained back in a way that is really nice. And you're kind of wanting more from him, which I think is the most important part. Um, you know, and, and that brass, you know, there's so much brass in this thing as there was in Papa's Got a Brand New Bag. But here, I think it's punchy. It's exactly what it needs to be for the track. And, you know, this is a very standard blues song, but yet it really is, you know, gussied up so well and polished so well by the little flourishes and such. It's just the perfect kind of entrance to funk music. And that genre is going to get, you know, it's going to evolve into something that is much more jammy and much more outsized. And you're going to hear so many different sounds incorporated with it. But here, this is funk as at its tightest. It's funk at its most delicious. And you just, come out of it wanting even more and that's what makes this such a you know integral moment in the evolution of the funk sound there are places i remember all my life we are now in december of 1965 and we are back with the beatles their third nomination for this year in hall of songs and it is from the album rubber soul it is in my life. Alright, I'm starting to get sick of these guys. Do we have any more uh, Hank Ballard and the Moonlighters we can nominate? I'm sure we can dig something up really quick, yeah. Um, the story behind this one, uh, so the Beatles were filming Help. Uh, soundtrack was coming out. They toured furiously. Summer of 65, they had a big show at Shea Stadium in New York, and the boys met Elvis, checked back in with Bob Dylan. They were smoking weed. They were getting into hallucinogens, and they were starting to pick up on all these other kind of sounds, folk rock and Motown and Stax Records, and really getting into all these American sounds. Back in Britain in the fall, they started writing and recording spent a little more time in the studio as producers working closely with George Martin on all their tracks. And the result is this fully formed adventurous, wonderfully cohesive album called rubber soul. And all the American influences are all over the place, but there's more stuff going on. There's 
French lyrics, there's Indian sounds, there's manipulation of tape speeds, totally new studio experimentation. And what comes out of it is this really wonderful piece of music that is 14 songs long and really sounds like a full body. And this song is basically the climax of that. It comes deep in the second side of the album, and it's written chiefly by John Lennon, who at first wrote a song about all the childhood places that he loved, like Strawberry Field and Penny Lane. He got rid of that idea when he thought it was too corny. Good idea. And then turned it into more of a broad remembrance of people and places gone by. And that's what this is. And it is a total mature turn for the Beatles. Even after Ticket to Ride, after yesterday, this is like complete adult contemporary rock and roll pop. Yeah, I said earlier, I love... Lennon's vocals in this particular era of the Beatles. And this is really, uh, this is where he really delivers, right? I mean, he has the perfect, uh, I don't know, this perfect balance between when he can sort of hit the high notes and then when he can sort of go down when it sounds sort of like it's, uh, you know, much more sort of like conversational as opposed to when he's really trying to put on a performative thing. And I, I love it. I mean, it's a, this is just such a great John Lennon song. The Rubber Soul is very much a response in some ways to folk rock and the birds and the Beach Boys starting to embrace more studio interplay and getting more involved in their recordings. What this particular song is, though, is not folk rock. This is a different kind of style. And I was thinking about it as I was listening is like, so George Martin is playing a piano that he speeds up to sound more like a harpsichord. And so is this really the first big Baroque pop song? You know, there are a couple Baroque songs like Baroque rock and roll, Baroque pop songs before this. But In My Life is the first really big one from an artist that, you know, means something and the song means something and it's part of a piece of art that means something. So is this really the first Baroque pop song? And that alone, I think, is a big reason for this song being as um as popular as 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 impactful as it should be um and also you know the fact that it is taken from california there maybe is an inch coming from folk rock but it's definitely the beatles sort of evolving into something more classical evolving into something more we're taking from outside of rock and roll now and we're trying to incorporate things that aren't just things that we would normally find in our studio yeah, I mean, imagining that uh, sped up piano solo compared to I Want to Hold Your Hand, one of our recent inductees is really amazing, right? Where it's uh, in in even what we Years. talked about, I Want to Hold Your Hand is such a step forward compared to some other things. But it really is this idea of it's hard to imagine that that's the same band in some ways that it they sort of played that and then they sat down in the studio and they said, you know, speed that up. Let's play this and let's play this sort of heartfelt song about our backgrounds. And, uh, you know, again, I just love it. Uh, I love everything on this album. And there's, you know, to me, there's not a note wrong on this album, uh, which makes it hard to sort of talk about in any kind of critical way. But uh, but yeah, I mean, they, they get it right. I love that the weird sped up piano is one of those things where in any other situation, it just might not work. And in this situation, it just feels perfect. All the leaves are 
All right, so we've talked about my favorite album of all time in Rubber Soul and probably my favorite song of all time in my generation. And now we have my first favorite song of all time, California Dreamin' by the Mamas and the Papas from December of 1965. There's a lot going on with this one. There's so much depth and morose feeling kind of throughout. It's really a neat song for how California and how harmonic it really sounds. Yeah, I just, I mean, this is one of these things that I, 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 I can't go on without. Uh, I grew up in, uh, yeah, I was born in Ann Arbor, Michigan, and my aunt Kathy, who I have to give a shout out to because she is a loyal listener of the show, used to drive me to Montessori school. And I would beg her to play the song, which I thought was called All the Leaves Are Brown. And it was definitely, I would yell, we have to play All the Leaves Are Brown. This is the song I have to hear. So this is the song that to me as a kid was like, it was the first song I ever remember listening to. It's definitely my first favorite song. And, uh, uh, you know, it's like, it's weird to listen to it now and to listen to some of the complexity of it and to hear about what's going on and about this idea of, you know, California versus New York and sort of the darkness of it, but did listen to me like as a kid, it was just pure fun. So let's talk about the complexity of it. So this is a folk rock sound, but it's also California. And as you said, there's that California versus New York thing. And the lyric sheet is all about a guy who is kind of at the end of his line here and he needs to get a change in life. And he's suffering in the cold somewhere, probably in New York. And he goes to a church and he asks the priest, you know, for some help. And, but there's more to that, right? The, the vocal delivery. So the vocalist on this one, and we'll get to the story of the mamas and the papas, Danny Doherty, uh, the way he sings, I got down on my knees is just thrilling. And then the way he, I never knew that the lyric after that was, I pretend to pray. I always thought it was, I begin to pray because apparently mama Castle also thought the same thing but it's pretend to pray. And that alone changes the whole song for me. And it's this guy who's down on his luck and he's, you know, a crap show, but he's also deserving to be a crap show. He's not supposed to go to California. He's a bad guy. Yeah, I mean, really, the the darkness of the song is really amazing. And I love, like, you know, as you said, this idea that it's it has really, you know, when you take a half step back, it has nothing to do with the weather. It has everything to do with what's going on in the world and just sort of taking a look back and saying, like, man, things are really, really bleak. And, uh, yeah, it's tough. It's a tough listen, you know, especially, you know, now it's like you listen to things and you sort of feel like it's kind of a fun folk rocky you know jangly song but it's tough i mean it really is sort of a you know he's sort of pouring his hearts out and it's like and like you said i, I that pretend to pray line just will kill you i talked about it with the you know in the sam cook uh song change is going to come last time about like this idea of this guy who you know grew up the son of a gospel person and is you know questioning his faith and it's this idea that he's willing to go into a church and just pretend to pray because what he looks around and he sees it just sort of this sort of bleakness and this darkness. And uh, it's like the music doesn't quite come across like that. I mean, it's not like it's, you know, it's not like it's this happy fun song, but at the same time, 
uh, it doesn't quite come across that, but that it clearly is this sort of undertone of uh, we're heading towards something that is darker. And, you know, it's our, this is, uh, we're heading towards sort of, you know, the Vietnam era. We're headed towards some of the music that I was alluding to in the psychedelic era, where it's a lot more edgy and it's a lot more, you know, criticizing what people are. Uh, you know, people like sort of criticizing day-to-day life in a way that things hadn't happened before. And it's going to get harsher to listen to. And uh, and this is such a, uh, you know, such an interesting song in that world. And it's an impressive, really first outing by the Mamas and the Papas. Uh, they are Denny Doherty, Mama Cass Elliott, Michelle Phillips, and John Phillips. And they were in some folk groups in the 60s. They came together in 65, so earlier in this year. They sort of practiced together in the summer of 65, then auditioned later in the year with Lou Adler of Dunhill Records, got a deal really quickly. The deal wasn't great, but they still got a deal. So they went in the studio, sang some background vocals, did some background vocals for Barry Maguire. Uh, They did a couple singles after that. Their first one was called Go Where You Want to Go. That failed. They did California Dreamin', of course, big hit. And then they kept going from that point on. Need to mention John Phillips accused of raping his own daughter in the late 70s and early 80s. Well, that is it. Those are the nominees for 1965 for the Hall of Songs. We have 12 nominees in total that we're going to add to the ballot. They are My Girl by The Temptations, Wooly Bully by Sam Sham and the Pharaohs, Ticket to Ride by The Beatles, Mr. Tambourine Man by The Birds. I Can't Get No Satisfaction by The Rolling Stones. The Tracks of My Tears by The Miracles. Like a Rolling Stone by Bob Dylan. Yesterday by The Beatles. My Generation by The Who. I Got You, parentheses, I Feel Good by James Brown. In My Life by The Beatles. And California Dreamin' by the Mamas and the Papas. So those 12 are going to enter our list of nominees uh, going into the next class, which is the 11th. The voting will begin as soon as this episode drops, which will be, of course, on August 22nd. Hallofsongs.com. You can vote. The other songs that are on the ballot include Wonderful World by Sam Cooke, Twist and Shout by the Beatles, Louie Louie by the Kingsman, The Times They Are Changing by Bob Dylan, Where Did I Love Go by the Supremes, a Hard Day's Night by The Beatles, Leader of the Pack by The Shangri-Las, You've Lost That Love and Feeling by The Righteous Brothers, and Gloria by Them. So 21 nominees in total for the next round. Again, hallofsongs.com is where you vote for the songs that you think should be in our Hall of Songs. Vote for up to 10 tunes at that point. Uh, any songs that you want to mention really quick before we get to those? Oh, let me see real quick. Yeah, so one when we were getting ready. So one I love is People Get Ready by The Impressions. We nominated a uh, Curtis Mayfield The Impressions song before. Uh, I really love People Get Ready. I think that's just a, you know, terrific song. It fits into sort of the whole, uh, you know, the the social the social movement, the so the the civil rights movement. I just think it's a lovely song. It's like not quite as well put together maybe some of the other songs i love curtis mayfield i will i it's just great uh, i would like to quickly mention king of the road by roger miller uh it's sort of this country song that exists on the you know in the parallel of this world and is 
in no way, you know, making any kind of social change, but is a fun song to listen to. And the one song that sort of uh, uh, I really liked more when we were getting ready for this is What the World Needs Now, the, the original version by Jackie DeShannon, which I think that's a Burt Backrock song, right? That's correct. And I, that song to me was it got closer to what I thought it would be as far as, uh, you know, making the list. It's, it's really a lovely song. And uh, I know Burt Backrack gets made fun of uh, sometimes rightly so, but that song really does still sound good. Yeah. That was right up there for me. Um, I'll also mention, I can't help myself by the four tops also known as sugar pie, honey bunch, which sugar pie, honey bunch means nothing, but (laughs) Phonetically within the sound of the song and how it sounds as a lyric is perfect. Like sugar pie, honey bunch is wonderful melodically to sing. So what a great song that is. Um, Also want to mention the song. These boots are made for walking by Nancy Sinatra. Maybe it's a veterans committee pick. We'll see after the 1966 episode, which is in just two weeks, we will then decide what songs we might want to put back in the nominee list for the veterans committee. And we'll put them in for the uh, episode after 1967, I guess, or something like that. I don't know. We've had a lot of beer. And thank you so much to Aaron DeLashman of Piper Now Productions for the great work designing our logo. He designs the guitar pick, the, the, the little guitar picks that we put on our website that notes all the Hall of Songs inductees. So go to our website, hallofsongs.com, to find all of those. And thank you to Stock Music Media for the theme song. They do a great job, and they're also newly married. Love you, buddy. I think that's it. 66 is coming up in two weeks. We have 66. Um, You know, more good songs, right? Oh, yeah. I think that's good. Uh, I was going to (laughs) say. It's been a long night. No, I was like. uh, I mean, I was just looking at the 66 list, which hasn't even really been curated and. uh, yeah, there's going to be some good stuff. You'll definitely want to tune in for that. Yeah, the Beach Boys Pet Sounds comes out at this time. The Beatles Revolver comes out at this yeah. time. But then you have just a wealth of great songs from a number of different artists. So it's going to be a great episode for sure. That's where we're going to be in two weeks. Maybe we'll have some bonus material coming out. But for then, we'll you know, just keep track of our stuff at hallsongs.com. Vote as well at hallsongs.com. And if you know people in your life who love music and want to listen and want to vote, tell them to go to hallsongs.com to listen to our podcast and vote for the songs that they think should be in the Hall of Songs. Until we meet again, I'm Tim. I'm Chris. Bye-bye. See you